This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Buildings on air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Hello, hello. Welcome to this April episode of Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture, frequently politics too. Um, it's going to be an awesome show. I got to tell you folks, it's been a wild week for me and I am um, tuckered out. And uh, but, I, but I know that the awesome show that we've assembled for you um, on this Saturday in April uh, is going to inspire me to new feats of endurance, <laughs> both physical and mental. Um, and I should also say, too, we have, a, we have a guest producer in the studio with us, Jamie Trecker, our super producer, usual character, usual suspect on the show. Um, couldn't make it, um, but we have Julie in the show with us. Julie, who's busy setting up uh, uh, our first guest, um, but, but sh- she'll say hello. <laughs> and uh, right now, um, we're getting Eva Fisher uh, on the line. Um, Eva Fisher is fantastic. Uh, Eva's, Eva's one one of the most uh, brilliant and incisive kind of thinkers on on, on architecture um, that I know. Um, then after we talk to Eva, uh, we'll be doing our regular mailbag segment with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke. Um, actually, I think Anne is out of town this week, um, uh, but Craig will be in the studio with us and we'll answer your questions about buildings. So if you've got a question about building, uh, there's still time to get that in. You can send it to us on Twitter at BLDGS on air um and then after that we'll talk to a friend of the show david work um who has been uh, diving into the cesspool of uh uh, the alt-right architecture twitter verse um doing the kind of lord's work of um <laughs> exposing himself to that um so we can talk about it critically and intelligently without having to subject ourselves to any of it um so that should be a great conversation with david and that's the outline for the show um is is eva on the line with us i am here oh i can hear eva all right fantastic um let's see but you're a little bit quiet um, is there yeah this connection is actually not amazing okay <laughs> well we can hear you uh okay. and uh, uh uh and and hopefully everyone else who's listening in on the fm waves can okay, as well try something. <laughs> is this any better it's just a little quiet still hmm. but we can soldier on i think julie okay. julie do you have any this is live radio folks uh we're going to try to uh, we we are trying something on our end, Eva. Um, but yeah, uh, maybe we can roll forth as uh, Julie does her magic on the um, on the setup to see if we can fine tune anything. Um, but uh, Eva, uh, how are you? Um, I'm 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 excited to be alive in this in this moment in architecture. I got to tell you. Yeah, it's a it's a wild <laughs> time. <laughs> it's a wild time. Uh, I yeah, I'd like there's just so much happening in the in the news. Um, I and I I can't believe it, and it feels like changes in the air. But um, with change, we're kind of having like constantly throwing all of the bad stuff <laughs> in our face all the time. <laughs> Yeah. You know, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the word panglossia recently, which is um, 
to, to paraphrase the definition, is the state of being utterly optimistic, uh, despite possibly having no factual basis for this optimism. And I thought, <laughs> finally, a word that describes me. Yes, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, is that from Candide, I think? Uh, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, my uh, middle school English classes coming to good use. Um, <laughs> but Eva, I, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, maybe you can give, give yourself a kind of more full introduction. Uh, tell us who you are, what you do, where you are. Um, and um, um, the thing that we're going to talk about today is architecture's PR problem, which I think is an interesting topic. Um, so yes, who, who is Eva Hagberg-Fisher? <laughs> um, yeah, so I do go by Eva Hagberg Fisher. I, I debated endlessly with myself what I was going to do when I got married, um, and I just recently reinserted my, I guess, born born name. I don't want to say maiden name. So yeah, Eva Hagberg Fisher. I live in the Bay Area. I'm completing a PhD in visual and narrative culture, which is a one-person department. I'm the only person in that department. <laughs> I uh, created it for myself at UC Berkeley. Um, and it's a mix of architecture, art history, uh, history, and American studies. Um, and I'm looking at, I will not give you the 45-minute version of my dissertation, but the 42nd one. <laughs> Maybe another I'm episode. I'm looking at the origins of architectural PR as a professional practice. And, um, and I'm really interested in how there's a sort of constant interchange between the personal and the professional and I think that that really applies to our present moment so I do that um, I also quietly whisper at architects and give them advice <laughs> um, that's my that's my other day job and then I also am an essayist and an author and I have a, a book coming out next year which has nothing to do with architecture though it does briefly describe the early 2000s in New York and my architecture career there. I was a architecture critic for a long time. So I think that's it. I'm also a trained yoga teacher. Oh, I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, like yeah, I, I, I warned you in advance that the way that I like to run the show is, you know, I think about it like a good conversation at a bar about architecture with smart people, and we put it on on air um, for folks to listen to when they're not at a bar, like when they're at the office plugging away on Revit or whatever, um, or having a relaxed Saturday um, as folks are now. Um, and 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 usually the way that I kick off that conversation um, is by asking a really unfair big question uh so uh, and i gave you i gave you fair warning um so so but 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 uh beautiful poetry for this unfair question is not expected um but the the, the question is like does architecture have a pr problem and, and kind of what is it um you know I, I that that's a big question to answer um but what, what do you think um I, I mean i would say yes yes a thousand times yes um, and I'm glad that you asked a follow-up so that we have more to talk about than, than <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think architecture has a couple PR problems. And one of them is internal and one of them is external. And I think that fundamentally, people don't really know what architects do. And this is not a new observation. This is not an Eva Hagberg-Fisher copyright observation. Um, many people, many smart people have made this point before, that, that architecture does have this sort of fundamental inability somehow to, or architects have an inability to, to really explain to 
the public what they do and why it's important. So an example of that is one of the architects that I work for, I sometimes interface with, with potential clients and they called me and said, so, so if we hire this architect, would he be the one deciding what materials we put like on the front? Like would he be in charge of the facade or does he just do the design part? Oh, wow. And th- these are people who are thinking of paying somebody, you know, four or five million dollars for a house. So you would assume that they have some sort of like general familiarity with how the world works. Um, and, you know, I had to be very gentle and say, oh, yes, so, you know, architects, they, they sort of do all of it. Um, so that's, that's one PR issue. I mean, the other PR issue is that I think um, there's such, you know, there's so much rhetoric right now about how divided our country is, and I think that architectural practice is, is equally as divided. Um, there are factions. The, the great um, quote that I've heard attributed to Kissinger that academia is so brutal because the stakes are so low, I think really applies to architecture, which, gets, which ties back to this larger problem, which is mm. that the stakes are so low because it is fundamentally undervalued in, in the world. Um, and I use the world very loosely and unspecifically, and I'm, I'm happy to get dragged for that on Twitter later. Um, <laughs> but so that's, that was sort of the pre let's say, pre-Richard Meyer PR problem. Mm. Um, And now I think that we have a massive PR problem, which is more internal than it is external. I think people that haven't been in architecture don't really maybe know what this moment is all about and how architecture's hashtag MeToo moment is seems to me and seems to others so intricately tied to architecture's architecture's larger labor problem, larger value problem, all these things that sort of all connected um, in this, as you said, I think really uncomfortable but also productive moment. Yeah. Well, and maybe as a, as a follow up to that, I'm, I'm I'm wondering how kind of like PR like can help or hurt these things, um, and, and I think you're you're well well poised to answer the question because you know like you know me being a kind of like dogmatic lefty usually when i hear pr i'm like ah, like those are the folks that go and put a slick on like you know uh uh you know like what what are massive problems and kind of uh cover them up or something right or or, or try to make them seem um uh, palatable and and i think that that's not exactly what we're talking about or how you how you think about PR maybe maybe it's that like you know you take the the public part of public relations <laughs> seriously or want the the relation to be a healthy one <laughs> or or an honest one or something like this um, but but yeah I don't, can you speak to that at all Yeah absolutely so I um, I mean I, I have a similar I don't know knee jerk might be too strong but maybe let's say a similar immediate reaction when I hear PR which is why I don't even really want to say that I do PR, but then I think, no, I should reclaim PR on behalf of <laughs> smart people who care about architecture, which is what I consider myself. So um, I think you had a couple questions, but I think that there are many different ways of doing PR. One way is what we just saw, again, Richard Meyer's office do in the New York Times in the most recent story, which I can't recall exactly, but the quote was something like, well, First of all, these allegations are over a decade old. Second of all, it was a different time. Third of all, you know, shrug emoji. (laughs) Um, 
that is the kind of PR that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Which is crisis management and bad crisis management. And on Twitter, I fixed it for Richard Meyer and partners, and I said, here's, here's, here's some free PR advice. You know, quote, we were wrong. We are so sorry. We will do differently starting today. Um, and so I think that's an example of, of public relations that is somehow trying to actually change a practice and make it congruent. Hmm. Um, so to take a sort of broader perspective than, um, you know, hire me to be your spokesperson, which is not what I'm saying, it's, I, think, I think that the, the publicist has a very specific role, and this is what I look at historically, is architects are very, very, very good at designing buildings. Um, Thank you. They are not, yes. Uh, <laughs> they are not so good at, at constantly keeping up with the media landscape and with the changing tides of public opinion. And so a lot of my clients will want to be in magazines that don't really make sense to me, and then they say, oh, well, I don't even read magazines. I mean, who has time to read magazines anymore? And um, I think it's hilarious that people want to be in magazines that they're not reading, which is a whole different conversation. <laughs> but for our purposes, right, it's important to know that these are different jobs, right? So I'm not a good designer. People ask me for advice about their kitchen renovations, and I'm like, do not, do not ask me for this advice. But if they ask me for advice about how to talk about their upcoming kitchen renovation in such a way that Dwell Magazine might be interested, that's a skill that I have. And to bring it into the sort of friendlier, more activist, more public-focused way of understanding public relations, I think what PR people in architecture can do is very subtly convince the public to care about architecture, which ultimately could lead to more people hiring architects, which ultimately could lead to less scarcity and fear in the profession, which could ultimately lead to better and more equitable pay practices, labor practices, et cetera. Um, so I do think that, you know, and maybe this is, I'm just trying to self-aggrandize for the nice kitchens that I do send to, to Dezine, um, but I think that there is a way in which if we just sort of keep repeating that this, this work is important, this work is specialized, this work is not everybody can do it. You can be great at Pinterest, but that doesn't mean that you're a good designer because mm. designers and architects have gone to school and they've practiced this. Um, so that's the sort of like state of the field again pre pre architecture's moment is is what I see the role of the publicist as being. I think now um, I mean I think that the the PR people the spokespeople they have a real responsibility right now to I think you know tell the truth about what's going on and just look at themselves and um, and take take their skills, which are language and communicating with the media, to take some sort of moral stand. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, like, the lack of moral fortitude in this industry is just crushing me right now. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty wild. And, it, I mean, I especially... You know, I don't know. It, it's 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 easy to see how things are changing, but it's also uh, continuously frustrating to see how they're not. Like, and uh, I'm I'm wondering too. You know, because one one of the tools that we have is is this is kind of 
set of uh, in, in these fights is the the AIA's code of ethics, um, which has all these like kind of weak points in it and needs to be strengthened in all of these ways. But it does kind of set a kind of a, a baseline for for behavior and, and lets activists point at something and say like, hey, like there needs to be accountability here because this was kind of broached and like I, and it, it made me think that like. Uh, I don't know about the kind of role of institutions in establishing ethics uh, like like uh, because I, I could I could easily see how um, and, and I'm wondering if there's a kind of equivalent for 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 uh, publicists because it, it does seem like the kind of work um, or that that requires an immense ethical fortitude <laughs> uh, because you, you kind of have to make these decisions may, maybe on your own um, about um, how to uh, uh, Put things out into the world openly and honestly, and 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 have open and on, honest conversations with your client. That's not an easy. That's not an easy thing to do um, when you're also kind of trying to make a living. Um, and so I'm I'm wondering. You know, I, I don't know. I kind of frame the question weirdly, but um, I'm wondering how how you kind of personally deal with um, um, some of those issues of of, of ethics and, and honesty and and uh, uh, you know trying to keep food food on your table. Not that those things are always counterposed maybe maybe it's a bad question <laughs> no it's a really good question and i'm really really glad that you asked and one of the one of the whispers going around the publicist circle which is extremely small is who's doing meyer's pr you know like, mm. i mean the first thing that i did when the news broke was i looked up who his pr person was and i saw that he has in-house communications people and i just like you know i live in the bay area so i, I sent i sent a, a vibration of of golden light in their direction, you know, because I was just like, this is, <laughs> this is a bad scene. I mean, it's, um, I had a situation recently that might be instructive. So I, I work with um, a very good architect who I respect a lot. And um, one of his associates emailed me and said that they were looking for uh, an associate who'd be really good at Revit for the low 20s. And I wrote back, okay, full time? Yeah. So, I'm a member of the architecture lobby. I think a lot about fair wage practices, and I just thought, low, I mean, low 20000 for a full-time employee, this is really not good. Yeah, that's not good. But, <laughs> I make know, more than that, and, and I'm a student. <laughs> I was like, but what's my role here? You know, I can't, I mean, how, how hard do I come in? And also, my friend Marianella had just read my astrological chart, which said that I am you know, high communication, but also high conflict and not very diplomatic. So I was feeling sort of, you know, undiplomatic, high conflict. I thought, God, but I really, I'm really torn, right? Because yeah. a significant part of my income comes from this person. And so I was very much living this ethical dilemma. And so I just avoided the email for a week and a half, which is, um, you know, because I'm a human. I finally thought, okay, I'm just going to pause and, and write and I said well you know I just looked up the cost of living in the area and I just can't get that excited about promoting a job that you know is below a living wage like as you know I'm a member of the lobby like this and this and this and my associate writes back and says oh no it was low 20s per hour <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being so diplomatic about calling <laughs> but it was so I mean it was I'm so glad that it happened though right yeah. because I got to go on this sort of roller coaster and I ultimately got to experience that I'd rather speak up than not right yeah. even if um, 
you know, I'm going to end up, in this case, feeling sort of embarrassed that I had struggled this much over something that I could have easily addressed. Um, But also, I mean, I sort of have to say the fact that it even occurred to me that somebody would be offering low 20,000s for this kind of job is a sign of, like, how dire things are in the industry. Yeah. Um, Right? So it's sort of like jokes on me for believing them, jokes on all of us that that was (laughs) remotely believable. Yeah. Um, But I also, I mean, I do have some, I have one client right now, and I, um, you know, I I don't totally agree with how he runs his business. Mm. Um, And... I'm really, I'm really living this conflict right now because there's nothing truly terrible going on. There's nothing illegal. There's nothing, yeah. you know, but I think, well, I'm getting emails from your employees at 1.30 in the morning. Right. You know, that's <laughs> not really congruent with this image that you've asked me to represent, which is that there's a huge lifestyle focus. So... That's a conversation that I have to do really slowly, but it's one that I am having with him. Um, so, I, I mean, I feel like my, I mean, I'm also like real talk. I'm afraid every day I'm going to get fired for being so outspoken. You know, yeah. I feel like I'm constantly on Twitter. I'm like asking Michael Kimmelman if he knew about Meyer, and Kimmelman's response was, was very careful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I think sometimes, like, Eva, this is, a, this is a bad business move. You know, like, be chill. Be chiller on Twitter. Um, and then I just think, okay, you know, if I'm going to get fired because I'm fighting for women to have, you know, women and non-binary architects to have more of a seat at the table than they do, if I'm fighting for, you know, ultimately male architects to have better um, working conditions than they have right now, like, yeah. If I feel like I'm on the right side of history, then I can probably find another job for myself. I've had like 14 lives. You know, I can have a 15. Um, yeah. But it is, you know, I have employees. I, su- I support. Uh, there's a lot of people's bank accounts um, are dependent, not, you know, not totally dependent, but are influenced by um, the choices that I make. And so I do feel also that pressure of, if it were just me, maybe I'd, you know, walk away from this person. Mm. But ethically, I have a responsibility to my one and a half employees, you know. So right. i got to be a little more careful. So it's it's a constantly shifting thing, but I do think about it pretty much every minute, which is highly relaxing. <laughs> yeah, well, and certainly being a part of the architecture lobby, um, regular listeners of the show will know that... Um, you know, this show, we, we talk about the lobby pretty much every episode in some way, big or small, um, which for listeners who are first-time listeners is, is, is essentially a, a labor advocacy group for architects that, that I'm a part of also, um, full disclosure. And, uh, but, but yeah, I think that that's also one of the reasons why we're like joined in the f- this fight as a collective in, in, in the architecture lobby is because, you know, making, making those, those ethical decisions on an individual level can be kind of impossible sometimes but but when we're acting as a kind of collective um, um, it, it it eases the burden or you at least know if you need to find another job that you've got a whole collective of people who've got your back on that um, right. yeah and I you I know mean, I, go ahead I know I just wanted to add to that I mean that one of the one of the great things about being part of a group is um, this sort of solidarity firm idea that that the lobby has been working on. Um, and I think that, that that is, 
you know, it's very unformed and it's in early stages, but one of the things that I'm, that I'm trying to do as an individual and as part of a group is to really collect supportive, friendly firms. Um, and, that, and that experience was one of the first times that I was like, oh, when we do things as a group, it's better than when I do it by myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and just to expand on that, it's, it's, it's basically a network of offices who, who are kind of there, there to catch people who um, kind of blow, blow the whistle on, on bad behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's the basic idea. Yeah. Well, and but you know, it, it's interesting to kind of uh, you know after after celebrating collective power, um, I, I, I think it's interesting to talk about the kind of role that uh, publicity plays because I, I think that like so so just by way of kind of a background like I you know I I'm uh, I taught a class on Mies van der Rohe that was heavily um, influenced by media theory readings of Mies van der Rohe uh, specifically Beatrice Kalamina who uh, who argues that um, uh, Basically, modernity is inseparable from kind of mass communication, and that the you know it's less of an aesthetic or a style, and and, and more um, the kind of result of of uh, of the rise of of mass media. And I think it's it's really interesting because because I, I, as an architect, like I'm I'm totally not interested in kind of mass media, but like that's almost a kind of reality, and you either kind of live by the sword or you die by the sword, and and uh, you know I. Either I either have to put my things on on Instagram um, and make things look cool, um, or I have a hard time kind of making it. So that means that I draw things in like you know with a square page, which is weird, um, and I do that because of Instagram, right? Like, and and I and I and I, I, I being critical about all of these things, I understand all the reasons why that is kind of bad, or all the forces that are kind of playing out in my decision to do that. But it, it makes me think that um, if, a, if an architecture worker kind of doesn't have any agency in the situations that you were kind of just describing, that actually a, a publicist might because you're in a good position to say, hey, like this is a, this is a, a bad look and uh, the mass media won't look kindly on that. And so that, that's a kind of uh, nice bit of individual power to have. Because the economic relationship of uh, the kind of work that you do um, to, to the system of architectural production is is uh, arguably stronger than than even the kind of work that is done to produce the architecture. I mean, I'll, I'll agree with anything that says that I am important. <laughs> power. Um, but I, I do want to I do want to say one one thing about the, the Instagram point. So. You know, I always tell, I had, I had a client ask, you know, should I start dressing better? Um, you know, I've heard, I, I've heard I should have a good brand. Should I start dressing better? And I said, you know, I really think that whatever your thing is, you should sort of lean into it. Um, so if you follow me on Instagram, my Instagram feed is, like, pretty much nonsense. I mean, <laughs> it, like, it doesn't have a cool aesthetic. It's mostly selfies of me in the airplane. We can put it in like, the show notes if you want, Eva. What? <laughs> we can put it in the show notes if you want. Oh, my want. God, please do. <laughs> it's, like, it's like weird medical-related subtweets. It's like pictures of Jello, right? Because I can't I, – I fundamentally don't have that sort of eye, you know? Yeah. So I think that there's a way in which sometimes maybe somebody who, who doesn't have a sort of broader – sense of the landscape might think like oh i gotta get on instagram or like oh yeah. I, you know i gotta dress cool but there's so many other ways to participate um 
But, you know, I mean, I was in a meeting recently, and there was a conversation about whether to change a firm name from the principal's name to a more collective name. Mm. And the principal is sort of going back and forth, and I am obviously hugely in favor of, of going towards a more collective name. And I found myself constantly switching roles very explicitly. So I would say, okay, I'm going to talk to you now as a you know, as an architectural worker. You know, I think this is great for your employees. This is great for morale. Um, your work already reflects this, so the name could also reflect it. Mm. And then I said, and also, just to be really crass, this is a great moment to get ahead of this, right? <laughs> like, you're like yeah. doing my best Olivia Pope and Scandal Fixer impression, I'm like, if you come out ahead right now and you say, you know, gosh, we just thought about it and totally on our own steam decided to change our name to a collective practice, people are going to respond really, really well to that mm. because I'm on Twitter. I have my ear to the ground. And my client was sort of like, well, I don't know about all this. Like, I haven't heard this. And I was like, well, that's why you have me. Right. right? Because I, it's my job to know what these conversations are. Um, you know, I don't know how much permanent headway that we made, but I think that you're right that there is a sense in which I do try to sort of Trojan horse myself a little bit. And, um, you know, it's like you come for the, for the promise of being in a magazine and you stay for the, like, radical unionization that I do <laughs> upon your employees. Um, and my clients are listening. I've already told them this. Um, so, yeah, and I think, but I think also to get back to this sort of, um, like, I don't know, I'm very pragmatic about media in a way and I am um, I think this is why I'm a good fit for architects is I don't get really worried about um and I always feel bad about saying this but like I'm not worried about artistic purity mm. I'm not I'm not worried about um like the the dilution of of smart critique I, I mean frankly I would prefer never to participate in discourse I mean I'm, I'm sort of I keep myself purposely very sort of uninterested in these things um which I think gives me an important role in this, right? Because the architects are like, you know, oh, I need to express my greatest work in this, you know, window lintel. And I'm like, yes, 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 do, do. <laughs> but, you know, but let me be here to be really pragmatic and say this is going to sell for Digest. You know, yeah. Look great in Digest. Um, and I ask my clients a lot, like, why are you hiring me? Right, because they say, oh, we don't want fame. You know, fame is very bad. There's sort of this whole, like, if you want fame, you're a bad thing. And, and I say, do you want more money? You know, do you want more clients? They're like, oh, no. You know, so finally, I just sort of wear them down. I'm like, listen, you're, you're paying me for a reason. If you want more clients, you want more fame, you want more, like, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, like, do I wish we lived in a non-capitalist society and that weren't an issue? Yes. But, but I think whatever that quote is, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Like, I right. sort of feel like that. So <laughs> we might as well sneak in a little good, right? We might as well use mass media, use people's obsession with fame to try and get them to pay attention to, you know, the way that a, that a well-designed parking garage makes them feel better when they're on their way to the cancer clinic. Right. right. And it's like, that's kind of my end game. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I want to return for a second to um, the kind of idea that... Um, Oh, well, I lost my train of thought here. I want to return. I want to return to the the kind of idea that you're talking about with. Um, oh, this is bad. I lost my train of thought here. But uh, uh, 
when we were talking about PR and its kind of relationship to um, uh, the kind of current moment with... Um, uh, actually, Julie, do you have any questions for Eva while I collect myself? <laughs> <laughs> it just blew your mind so hard with my pragmatism. Yeah. <laughs> What's your take on the fountainhead? <laughs> oh, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. Yeah. No, but I, yeah, I think I, w- I, wanted, I do want to talk about kind of the way, the way in which you think that, uh, like, we can kind of change change our, the percept the public perception of architecture. This is where I was going. Yes, thank you, thank you, Julie, for being a ringer for a moment. Um, but because I think that I you know I hear this from architects all of the time, and I've said it myself, and it's something that we talk about in the architecture lobby quite a bit. Um, but this idea that uh, you know kind of people don't understand what we do, and you said that earlier as well, and um, I, it occurred to me that I don't actually know uh, if that's true, but I suppose. That, that, that you do and, and, and you said so and so I'm curious like how, how we start to change that and like to what degree is that true um, and, 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 and maybe as a follow up question um, if that's not enough questions for you um, how like if, if people don't understand what we do or people do understand what we do like who, who are those people who kind of get it right I mean like is it is it sort of is it just the dwell reading clients and, and how, I, how might we kind of go beyond them yeah so I mean, it's funny, you're making me think. I'm like, why do I just think that that's true? Um, and maybe my sample size is very small. So I also, uh, I teach at UC Berkeley, and a couple semesters ago, fall 2016, I taught a reading and composition seminar that was about Zaha Hadid, hmm. um, who by that point had passed away. And uh, the class was at 8 a.m., Monday and Wednesday. And, um, you know, the first day I said, okay, who's here because they like architecture? And I think two hands were raised out of 22 students (laughs) and I said who's here because all the other required RNC uh, classes were full and nobody (laughs) wanted to sign up for the 8 a.m. and so this was your only spot and the other 20 hands went up (laughs) and so I just used this as a sort of test case right I thought okay this is a bunch of different majors they all have to take this writing class because Berkeley wants to teach people how to write Mm. Um, how am I going to get them you know get them going and they by the end of it you know I think maybe two still didn't care about architecture, but the rest of them were, like, sending me pictures from Beijing and being like, I saw the skyscraper, and, like, I walked past the Berkeley Art Museum, and I thought differently about something. <laughs> and so I think that, like, I mean, one one answer to the question is, like, who are these people? Yeah. And maybe this is, like, um, the, the youth of tomorrow, who I firmly believe will save us all. They are so woke and so unafraid, and they're so great, and I'm just so honored to be around them. Um, and I think that, that education is really is really important, and I consider mass media to be a form of education. Um, So that's sort of like half an answer to your question. I mean, I think that, I mean, there's so many different angles to this. One one thought that just comes to mind is that there's such a relentless focus on urbanism lately, right? So everybody's an urbanist. Nobody's an architecture critic anymore, except for the few architecture critics like Alexandra Lang, who are amazing. I think that there's sort of been this, like, worry within the academy, which has then bled into journalism and practice, that architecture is somehow, like, not enough. Like, we have to remind people that cities 
are made of architecture to get them to care about architecture. So I'm sort of like, you know, make architecture architecture again, um, <laughs> would be my, my tagline. Yes. Um, and, and I, so, so, I mean, so maybe like the sort of ill-considered answer is, is most people, possibly including architects, don't even really see what architecture is or what it can be. And, um, I mean, I'm, I'm very sort of emotional in my response to architecture, and I, I just feel like everybody's in it all, all, not everybody, but a lot of people have some sort of encounter with architecture mm. most days in, yeah. in some way, right? So is a bus shelter architecture? Yes. Is a, is a bench architecture? Yes. Is a house architecture? You know, all these things. And so I think that, like, the role of mass media is to just gently open people's eyes mm. a little bit. Um, the question then is like, okay, but who's reading Dwell or who's reading T, the New York Times magazine? It's usually people that already mostly care. Um, and so then I think the challenge is to like just slightly elevate the conversation. Right? Nah. So I sort of see the press as like a puzzle. right? So you have one project and you think, okay, so I'm going to get going to get it published in this magazine, which is super consumer-oriented, and it's going to have super pretty pictures, but I'm going to, like, basically train my client not to say anything uh, boring, right? So they're not going to talk about, like, well, the clients really wanted two bedrooms, and they have a dog. Mm. No. You just hold the line, and you just elevate the conversation, right, to the sort of limits of tolerance of that publication. Um, and so it's really diffuse. It's really widespread. This is all very experimental. I have no idea if this like actually works. Yeah. But I think it gets people thinking a little bit more. It gets the people who are reading thinking a little bit more. Then you have you know publications like Dazine that have millions of Instagram followers, and they post really beautiful pictures, and they also have good writers who think about these buildings. And so again, it's just sort of. I don't know. Again, I don't really have a problem with like diluting things to reach yeah. the greatest audience and then like slowly beginning to collect them and eventually they'll be reading, you know, Room 1000, the 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 Berkeley-based journal of discourse, right? We'll yeah. eventually get them if we want them. Yes. Um, but okay. I kind of think there's room for like my least favorite observation is, oh, well, I don't know anything about architecture, so I don't know how this house makes me feel. Right, right. And I'm always just like, no, you, you have taken your body into space that was organized by somebody. How? What does it do to you? And then they say, oh, well, this window makes me feel really weird. Yeah. Architecture. <laughs> 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 totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got like five minutes left, and I have one kind of last question along similar lines. You know, I th I think. Uh, this is less a feature of our current kind of discourse, but I think like 10 or 15 years ago, there was this kind of idea that the internet and social media and, and all of these things were going to kind of totally rewrite and democratize the way that we publicize things, right? And, and the way that we kind of have uh, big conversations. And I, I think that's been shown not to be true. I, I think that everyone's kind of maybe there on the kind of limits of social media and you know we have a more intuitive feel generally I think uh, for what it's good at because it's good at some stuff really and what it's not. Um, I'm wondering kind of where, where you fall on that because it, you know we've referenced a lot of uh, uh, 
publica- print publications, but also publication like online publications, who I think make excellent use of social media to publicize their publicity and, and the kind of work that they're doing and their their op eds and everything else. But um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, like, what is the kind of role of that that like form formed institutional uh, kind of press um, in 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 this society and in in this architecture? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that you're right. I think people were like, the internet, it will be everything, <laughs> and it is not what we thought it would be. Yeah. And I mean, I love the internet. Um, I also am afraid of the internet, but. Um, I mean, I, I think a good example is, so I had this conversation with Blair Kamen, who's the Chicago Tribune architecture critic, about this Me Too moment. Yeah. And one of the points that he made, or I made, or we made together was that um, you, you kind of need journalists who are protected by institutions to chase difficult stories. Hmm. Um, we still practice access journalism in architecture. And certain publications want to be sure that they're going to continue to have access to the hottest projects first because the the exclusive image is basically gold. Um, so I can see that somebody like, I don't know, um, a, a magazine that is mostly, you know, luxury design focused wouldn't want to start poking around in a current Golden Boys relationship behavior um, or, you know, intern-related behavior, because if they're wrong, then they've burned a bridge. And if they burn that bridge, then they're not ahead of everybody else, right? Yeah. So the role of institutions that don't have to practice access journalism is very, very, very important, because somebody like Blair Kamen, somebody like Michael Kimmelman at the New York Times have institutional protection. They have lawyers on staff who can protect them if they chase a story, mm. right? So Robin... Pogrebin, who broke the Richard Meyer story, I think was kind of the only person who could who could do that. So, oddly, like the most, or maybe not oddly, but it, I don't think it's going to be like upstart rogue journalists who, who sort of uncover, you know, architecture's various abuses. It's, it's going to be the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, yeah. uh, the New Yorker, you know, these really, really sort of vetted institutions. Right. Um, and I think also, I mean, Instagram is great, but it's really like, it's mostly bots talking to bots. <laughs> um, if you look at the comments on, you know, I, I sort of started looking into um, very, very famous architects who have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. I started looking at the followers and I was like, these are not people that are into architecture. Right. Um, from my superficial analysis. Um, and so... You know, and I've had clients be like, well, why do we want to be on Instagram? And I'm like, well, if somebody is going to write a profile and they look at your Instagram page, they want to see that you have, you either don't have a page or you should have a couple thousand followers. You don't want to have like a couple hundred because that's yeah. kind of lame. But it's all kind of like smoke and mirrors. Right. Um, I don't think it's substantially impacting the discourse or changing yeah. anything. You know, I was reminiscing with uh, my friend Martin Peterson, who used to be the executive editor of Metropolis, about like, 15 years ago, everybody read Metropolis cover to cover. Like, it was, you know, they had columnists. That was where I got my first print byline. Like, it was it was a different time, and of course it was, it was you know, easier yeah. than now, we always think. Um, yeah. I don't think it was actually easier. But, 
I mean, yeah, too long, don't read. Like, the Internet is changing things, I think, not in the way that we thought it would. And and there's still, uh, we, we very, very, very much need, um, I think, institutions that have resources yeah. and that are not subject to the whims of um, personal relationships. And, and, again, this goes back to PR, though, where the, you know, I see my role often as maintaining these personal relationships so that the architect doesn't have to. Right, right. Um, which is sort of a different conversation, but also sort of the same yeah. conversation because, you know, they can have a fight as long as they're not having a fight with me. <laughs> sure. Well, Eva, we are out of time. I'm wondering if you have any last-minute thoughts very quickly on, on anything. Um, we'll definitely have to be have you back on the show because because uh, this this conversation uh, I think uh, is is just the beginning. Really, we've just scratched the surface here. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, yeah. I think I want to say like. Um, I don't know. I, I'm always very rousing about this, but it's like we're. I think I think that there's a lot of us that are on the right side of this. I think there's a lot of us that are working together. And if anybody is listening to this and is like, "Oh man, like I'm in this firm and they do like weird stuff," and like, but I'm alone. Like you are not alone. There are so many of us who want to step in and help you and work with you. And like, I'm very findable on the internet. So you know, track me down. Um, but I really think that this moment is is really powerful um and i'm and i'm really optimistic about the practice yeah me too awesome well thank you so much eva and uh um, we look forward to talking again soon thanks for thanks for coming on the show yeah my pleasure thanks for having me yeah bye bye Mumpin' Radio is supported by Chicago Independence, an organization of approximately 35 independently owned restaurants in the greater Chicago area who have banded together to present local neighborhood dining options. Chicago Independence Restaurant Week is March 19th to 26th. More information is available at chicagoindependence.com. The Co-Prosperity Sphere presents a night of local art and photography with two special live acts on April 20th. Brought to you by the Jagoffs behind the Cardboard Art Show and Bridgeport All-Stars, this split event begins at 6 p.m. with an open gallery call and then live sets from experimental rock bands VV Lightbody and Fell Runner from 8 p.m. It's Co-Pro Goes Photo on 420. <laughs> 420. This event benefits Lumpen Radio. Lumpen Radio is supported by Mars Community Brewing. Mars's new tap room, located at 3630 South Iron Street in Bridgeport, is now open for lunch Wednesday through Sunday. More information is at marzbrewing.com. What's Mars is yours. Lumpin' Radio is brought to you in part by Jackalope Coffee and Tea House, proudly serving the Bridgeport area since 2012. Celebrating its fifth anniversary, Jackalope serves counterculture coffee, fine teas, along with breakfast and lunch. Located on the cul-de-sac at 32nd and Halstead, Jackalope is open seven days a week to serve you. Menu and hours available online at jackalopecoffee.com. <laughs> Hello. Uh, we are back with Buildings on Air, um, and we're here doing the mailbag, uh, the segment where we answer your listener questions. 
about buildings. Um, and we're here with Craig Reschke, one half of the usual mailbag crew, um, and could not make it. Um, Thanks for still having me without my better half. <laughs> it's all right. We'll make we'll make it work. You know, we'll we'll f- we'll figure something out. Um, and can listen to the show later and tell us all the things that we did wrong. <laughs> um, I should also say um, because it's been such a crazy week um, that that I I did not collect the questions uh, this week. Um, uh, my 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 loving partner Marianella did. So thank you, Marianella. Uh, uh, yes, try to throw us a curveball. Uh, there's some good ones in here there's some really good ones in here and um we also got a couple listener questions sent in um like i always say on the show um you know none of our questions are made up they're not made up but we do solicit some because uh we don't get enough listener questions all the time so you know feel free to send some in um otherwise we have to go trawling in deep dark corners of the internet to go (laughs) to find questions about buildings that people want answered um but yeah i i guess uh, let's see where to start where to start um bu- 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 bu. um i guess i'll start with the listener question um so this one uh is uh p- pretty straightforward we have a couple of doors in the house that are rubbing at the top right side the doorknob side how can i fix this well the top right side of the of a left hand swing so you could do a couple things one you could uh, try to tighten the screws on the uh, top left of the door at the hinge. Yeah. That will pull the door away from the frame a little bit. If it's a solid door, you could take it off and you could kind of trim or sand that corner and then restain it. Mm-hmm. Or you could check the door frame with a level to make sure that the door is uh, level inside the frame and that it's not kind of askew, which is what's causing it to rub. Yeah. I think those are all all good solutions and can all be done probably uh, fairly easy, easily yes. with like household household tools. I think that's true. Yeah, um, like leveling and planing uh, doors is really not fun. No, yeah, not at all. <laughs> uh, the first time I installed doors, I used the um, uh, oh my gosh, now I'm forgetting what it's called, but like to to scrape out the. Um, mortise tinge uh, where you just like kind of take a little piece of wood at a time to shape it into the form of the hinge yeah it's it's hard work <laughs> it is yeah yes the the more and the mortise hinge is the kind that for 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 our listeners it's the kind that's like sort of Im- embedded into the wood for lack yeah, of a better word recessed into recessed the wood. yeah yeah um but yeah the, the it's you know i also think too there's this interesting thing with these self self uh um the the what do they call them the doors that the pre-hung doors yes yeah because like pre-hung pre-hung windows it's like a whole window unit that you just kind of like put into a rough opening and you put some shims in there and then you cover it up with trim and like you know um uh bing bang boom you've got like a nice window that works and that's they've been doing that for a long time but they just started selling doors the same way and like i don't i'm very skeptical i i guess like i i've specced them on projects before but like uh would you say they just started selling pre-hung doors like i think they're only like a 10 year old thing like i remember like them being like very novel like when i was like in my undergraduate of architecture school and not not just for reasons of like i was an undergraduate (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to i i recall as a child seeing many uh 
because my dad was a contractor seeing many pre-hung uh, entry doors. Uh, I don't know about interior doors. Yeah. Maybe those are new. Yeah. I'm actually convinced, though, that we can find a way to uh, build a kind of simple door frame that yeah. can be built in place rather than using pre-hung because the, like, the, the details at the edge of the pre-hung door are so yeah. hideous. Yes. Yes, they are. So I have a dream of building, <laughs> you know, like a row of 10 small doors in the office <laughs> at, at one-to-one scale Ooh. with different details. Yeah, that sounds like I, I that's, that's extremely my jam. I would be down to help with that. <laughs> So every time a contractor yeah. comes in, we can just be like, we want that one. <laughs> and then they can't give us any, any uh, yes. hard time oh, about real it. Real life door, door schedule. Um, here's another question. Uh, why do you rarely see floor-to-ceiling windows in residential housing? Because they're expensive, I guess, is the, <laughs> the easy You think answer. that's it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine that it's for f- like furniture, actually. Like, uh, cause in resident, like residential houses are like slightly smaller scale than like office buildings and like you, you know, and uh, plus a desk in an office, like in an o- is always like in the middle of the room generally. Um, um, but like, you know, in a residential house, you like generally put your furniture up against the wall. And so if you had a full height window, it would be kind of weird, um, I think there's a lot of residential projects with like elegant full height windows though. Right. And people figure out. Yeah. How to the ones the that like architects look at, like you know, the things that are in like our history textbook, <laughs> like for sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have a feeling though, that the developer is not sitting around saying like, Oh, I'm worried about this furniture. I think it has to do with bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And the, um, the kind of ease, ease of install and details. And right. Kind of typical. Uh, I guess typical construction. the pre-hung window makes its return in the second question. That might be the theme of this mailbag. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause then you can just kind of like pop in the window and it's much cheaper pop versus dealing with a uh, kind of aluminum window mullion sections and putting the glass in and all that. It's more labor intensive. Yep. Yeah. But I mean, I think people should do more floor to ceiling windows. So whoever asked that question, next time <laughs> ask your architect for more glass. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've got more questions. Julie, you had a question. Yeah, I did. Um, my question was, um, how old is the concept of smart buildings? And is it a rebrand of an older concept? Is it? Oh. Yeah, that's a good question. Um I don't know if I really buy uh, that smart buildings are that smart because I think what happens is that you end up with a bunch of wiring and technology inside your house that is going to be out of date in five years. And then at some point you just shut it off and never use it again. Right. <laughs> well, and there's like all these, uh, I don't know, like since the 19 teens, there's always been like all of these exposition homes, right? Like homes of the future, like uh, from uh, there's there's even some that are like, aren't there a bunch like by Gary? (laughs) Like, like, I think if you go south um, from from our fair city here uh, uh, along Lake Michigan, um, they have some homes that were built for the oh, Gary, Indiana. I yeah. thought you were saying Frank Gary. And no, no, like, no. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> yes, no. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, from the World's Fair, they are in. Um, uh, they are on the coast in Indiana, and I forget the yeah. name of that small town, but they are in uh, quite 
quite bad shape. And yeah. I drove by them recently. Or oh. there's two of them that have been rehabbed and one that's falling down. Gotcha. But I guess like those were smart homes, right? And it's it's interesting too because they, they also had like um, – uh, I don't know when you go to like see MoMA shows like you're they always have like all of these um, modernist architects who are like you, you know making fantastical drawings about like this is the technological home of the future and it's going to be so good and uh, everything is going to be solved by all of these problems uh, or by all of this technology and like none of those things like ever come to pass in the ways that are, are expected um, well like the Sears uh the Sears steel home yeah. kind of what there were a few of them built. Mm. Um, but the, the thing that I think is different is that all of those houses were always about kind of construction techniques. Yeah. Whereas I think if you look at kind of uh, ads for the smart home today, it is about technology like, in a house that looks like a house from 1985. <laughs> you know, like uh, even, do you think everyone's living out like their like night rider, like nostalgic fantasy, like in their house? <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's not even that cool. It's like, if you think of the, uh, the, uh, yeah. What's Elon Musk's solar company, uh, uh, solar city or whatever. Yeah. The shingles they came up with, like all of the kind of renderings promoting that were like these high tech shingles on kind of like craftsman style. Bungalows. Yeah. I, yeah. That's weird. I, well, and I also, I don't, I, uh, so much of it. Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of an appendage because that's almost like the only way in which like building products can like be, like delivered all of the smart home technology and stuff. Like it's like a product in a catalog and you kind of pick it out off the shelf and like, like put it into your, like put it on a thing, a surface in your building. Like I, you know, it does, it just seems like it's maybe less integrated these days than, than even the, the utopian visions of the kind of, I don't know, yesteryear. Yeah. Uh, I actually think that the the kind of true smart home of today would probably have less technology in it and more yeah. flexibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and I, yeah, I don't know. And it's just like this is what always gets me crazy about like the. I, I it, it makes me feel like such a luddite all the time because uh, you know there's everyone has just like such faith that like technology is going to come in and like solve problems and like make life better. But like, it, like I, I don't know. I, I just like it's i'm i'm not against like the development of technology like that seems to me to be very obviously a good thing but the question is like for for whom and in what ways and uh that's a question about politics actually and very little about technology but like when you when you like open up all of these like old popular mechanics issues you're like how is like the kind of like Elon Musk and all of his like fanboys like how 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 is that fantasy like any different than the kind of things that we like see like i'm still waiting on my like st- stupid smart refrigerator with a touchscreen where i can like order <laughs> groceries you know like how long have they been promising that like 15 and presumably they exist now but you can like get that at best buy if you, you want to sell raspberry pi on that <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's kind of what i was sitting here thinking is that like all of this uh work and development is really just like resulting in me getting a text message when my toast is done or something which is so so useless uh I was going to try to make a joke, but it's so useless that I can't even like make a joke about a situation in which that would be humorously useful. Uh, Text your jokes about text messaging toasters. 
to at BLDGS on air on Twitter. Yeah, send us send us a message <laughs> about your messages. <laughs> Maybe also a fan of the Brave Little Toaster. Uh, oh yes, yes. <laughs> uh, shall we move on? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I don't know if we actually answered that question. Yeah, I don't know. Was do you feel satisfied with that answer, Julie? Kind of. Yeah. Like the the reason I asked that question in the first place is because I work um, in this place like on campus called the command center and we like re- remotely <laughs> <The> command center <laughs> yeah, no, no it's actually like this joint like it slash facilities office where we, we like remote remotely monitor a lot of like wireless devices and, and like data center mainframes and like i guess that makes the, the campus a smart campus but i don't feel very smart like when i'm <laughs> at work because <laughs> half, half the time like our reporting software does not work right well, yes, the the internet. Well, first of all, let me make a joke, Craig. We need to rename our office, like the our office space, the Situation Room, <laughs> just so we can say that we have a, we have to go to the Situation Room. Uh, anyway, that's my first thought based on what you said. In our offices, we are not constantly managing crises, which seems to be what the Situation Room is for. It's true. Uh, okay. Okay. Next question. Um, Let's see. How are brick sewer systems constructed, and how do they not cave in from the weight of the streets above? Arches. Explain. <laughs> like, yes, I know that. You know that. Uh, the person who asked this question does not. Uh, what is an easy way to explain an arch? Um, the If you look at many um, uh, older buildings from, I guess, the... Um, Oh my God! Now is when I need Anne's Anne's history expertise from the um, from the 18th century, from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see many stone pieces that are shaped like wedges, and then at the top is something called the keystone, mm-hmm. um, which you would build a um, a kind of framework that was on the ground. You would stack all the stones on top, and then the keystone provides pressure. Um, right at the top of the arch so that the two sides kind of push against each other and you can take the scaffolding out from underneath and the arch stays in place. Mm -hmm. Brick works in the same, in the same way. You can kind of put all of those pieces um, together around a piece of scaffolding or some formwork. And then when you take it out, it will be held up. Right. And I think the way that you extrude that is interesting because I, it wouldn't surprise I, I You see this sometimes in like complex like dome or vault construction from like the 13th and earlier <laughs> centuries um, uh, where you – 13th. I just – said 13 i guess really <laughs> just in general if you look at like a seeger loverance building like they have them but like they they use kind of brick in a herringbone pattern um which kind of lets you build complex curvatures using the same arch principle but like in in different shapes such as a tube <laughs> <laughs> um, which i presumably sewers are tube shaped uh yeah um yeah uh Fun facts about sewers that I know in Chicago, we still use a lot of kind of short clay pieces, hmm. um, whereas like many, um, many municipalities now use like yeah. long um, fiberglass sewers. Yeah. So Interesting. Different, well, different cities build their sewers in different ways. Yeah. I, I maybe I'm, I'm positive it's come up in a mailbag before, but the city of Chicago still uses wood water mains, right? 
and like not not like not as a matter of course, but like there's still oh, yes, there there's still, still wood water, water mains that yes. are in service. Yes, I've seen. I once saw them taking one out on Irving Park. Okay, Park. here's my question: Is it like a barrel that never ends, or is it a hollowed out tree trunk? What is a wood? <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's a good yeah, question. Yeah, that's my question about wood water mains. Yeah, <laughs> I have a feeling that it is probably two sides of a log that have been hollowed out and then glued back together. Gotcha. Seems uh, like the easiest way to it, form it. It does. Although the idea of a barrel that never ends <laughs> <laughs> tickles me endlessly. <laughs> um, all right. Next question. Um, why does my furnace run for such a short time so often? This is a great question because I've <laughs> Craig, I've talking. never seen your face light up so much. Um, Okay, well, uh, our mechanical engineer has been just like drilling this into my head recently um, because he keeps wanting to spec uh, heat pumps for many projects that we're working on. Mm -hmm. The smallest uh, kind of commercially available furnace is about 40,000 BTUs. Mm. And many apartments in Chicago are not big enough to need a 40,000 BTU furnace. So rather than the furnace kind of clicking on and running for a minute to um, or running for a while to warm up the house because it has so much capacity, mm. it turns on, it heats up the house really fast, and then it clicks off. Mm -hmm. And this actually is a um, is really hard on furnaces because mm. the they are rated for the number of starts. Mm. So instead of your furnace going on and off less often and still maintaining temperature as a kind of lower BTU furnace or a heat pump would do, yeah, your furnace is just constantly clicking on and off. Interesting. You can – you should be able to change the setting in your um, thermostat to um, change the kind of range of temperatures you are willing to accept. Mm. So your furnace – say your furnace will go on and like heat the space to 70 degrees and you say you're okay with kind of 67 to 70. Gotcha. Then it will be off until it yeah. gets all the way down to 67 instead of if it's trying to maintain it right at yeah. 70 every time it drops a degree, it'll click back on. Right. Well, and part, part of it is thermostat location just in general too, right? Yeah. Um, like if your thermostat is right next to your furnace, the furnace like it is in my house, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> um, you know, then, then that area immediately adjacent to the furnace is going to be the kind of hottest. All of the stuff is warming up and the thermostat will be like, hey, it's really hot now. It's, we did our job. Great. And, uh, you know, the rest of the house will still be cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, uh, make sure your landlord or yourself checks your uh, furnace um, your furnace filter because clogged filters will also make the furnace kind of click on and off a lot. Uh, the more you know. Um, cool. Well, that's question asked and answered. Um, next question. What are small walls on windows of tall buildings for? Does it have to do anything with the weather? They just seem to be locked, blocking light slash views. I, uh, uh, Marinella pointed out to me that these small walls are probably fins, uh, like building f uh, I have no. Can you hear me still? Oh, I turned back. Okay, wait, but I can't hear myself. I also can't hear myself. Oh, but are we still it on the radio? <laughs> Okay, well, we can't hear ourselves in our headphones because we had a, a, a dash dash the radio station that made, made a leap onto the table. <laughs> it was great. Technical difficulties for us. Um, but you can hear 
me. Yeah, I can and hear I can you. Hear let's you, so, so let's keep around. going. Yeah. Even though it's actually it's really hard when you don't hear yourself in the headphones. Anyway, that was really adorable. Actually, <laughs> I, I wish everyone could see that and not just hear our <laughs> reaction. <laughs> um, anyway, so we were asking about these small walls, which, uh, as Granella pointed out to me, I, I think mean kind of vertical fins on the side of tall buildings. Um, oh, I was at first thinking maybe they were referring to spandrel panels, but I guess uh, the kind of uh, they could, they might be. But I think uh, I think they mean fins. Okay. Well, fins uh, fins are mostly for shading, and it depends on what side of the building you're on. Sometimes, uh, and the the kind of where the sun's position is on the south, we often want uh, horizontal fins to block the sun when it's high in the sky. Yeah. And on the um, on the east and west, um, we want vertical fins. Uh, to block the sun as it's kind of coming up. I mean, I can, I can, yeah, my, I was going to say, I can see head. you just like recalling charts and graphs from like, you know, classes past. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it is to stop uh, some of the uh, sun's energy from hitting the glass right. um, and the, therefore reducing cooling loads because in many buildings, um, that have those kind of fins or current walls or kind of tall office buildings, there's actually very little heating load even in the mm. winter um, mm-hmm. because of all of the equipment running in the building that's primarily cooling. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, it's interesting to, to talk about because this person was like, they seem to be blocking light and views. And it's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes blocking light is is, is very desirable for, uh, for the environment. If you've ever had a glare on your computer screen, yeah. you would... Yes. No <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, I also think it's interesting because the new the new codes um, are really strict in terms of like the amount of glazed area that you're allowed to have, um, unless you I don't know. Like there there's several paths to demonstrate uh, compliance with the energy code, but the most basic one. Um, the prescriptive path, I think it's called, uh, basically gives you a set of rules that you just have to follow. Um, and it's the most strict one, um, because of that. But I think like they keep changing it and reducing the amount of glass area that you're allowed to have on a building. And I I think it's down to like 30%, only 30% of the surface area, exterior surface area of a house or whatever, uh, can be, uh, glazed or have windows. Farnsworth House, not energy no, compliance. No, no, but like it's 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 weird though because it's like you know I don't know as much as I love like very solid like stereotomic sort of like buildings um, with like big blank walls and like heavy materials and everything like I I. Um, I have just like struggled to see how a building with like thirty percent glazing like like looks good or is comfortable for the people inside of it. Yeah. But I also have questions about a building with 100% glazing, like all of the oh, glass certainly. box condo towers that are going up. Certainly. Certainly. I am sure do not meet the energy code. Yeah. But, oh, almost positive. Well, part of it, and this is an interesting tangent is that the non-prescriptive path, you basically put, 
like this is a peek behind the curtain of how architects work a little bit. You like put it into a program called ResCheck or ComCheck, which are both provided by the Department of Energy, and like they're really clunky softwares and you print out a report that says thumbs up or thumbs down and you take it to your building department and they look at it and they say great <laughs> and uh, actually the the building department for standard plan review does not look at it at all great they just rely on the compliance statement on the front of your plans that says you the architect are claiming that it complies oh wow so this is um so so you just that's why get, you see so many small buildings going up around Chicago that don't meet the energy right. code. But, not, not that I'm the energy yeah, code's biggest advocate. But I think that even if they were running it through ComCheck, and if someone was reviewing that, ComCheck is such a bad piece of software that like, I think you can you can kind of get away with with murder in that software. Because like even just if you input the same thing in two slightly different ways uh, that, that appear all similar and to any kind of cursory review, no one would bat an eyelash. You would get wildly different kind of results. So it's, it's really easy to kind of play the game with that one and not actually do the thing. Yeah. But to go back to small walls and fins, Hmm. I also think that they've become a kind of decorative element that architects are adding to glass buildings just as like, something to do on the facade (laughs) right yeah yeah you see so many buildings now with like weird fin patterns well yeah and i think it's because it's on these massive projects like because because usually these aren't like sort of mid-rise or high-rise like big projects they're they're the the only thing that the architect is really in charge of is the kind of build like building facade and making it look nice and you know (laughs) the only thing that you can do for that is kind of like pick your preferred metal panel system out of a catalog right and um you know maybe add some fins why not yeah i don't know maybe that's too (laughs) cynical yeah (laughs) (laughs) have we jumped jumped the shark a little bit (laughs) okay uh next question um this is an interesting one actually what type of design do rei stores use they typically look like big metal boxes with wooden elements I think, that, <laughs> I think that's what they are. Yeah. I'm not even sure that the wood elements are real wood. I, yeah, they're probably what? I think they are mostly, uh, I mean, it depends on where you're at, but most of the REI stores I am recollecting at the moment are, <laughs> are steel, build, steel one-story buildings um, with some yeah. decorative wood pieces on the front of them. Yeah. Yeah, they're like big box stores with like, you know, one of the interesting thing about things about big box stores is the way that they're kind of like like dressed up in the front I always think like it's like put put an appendage over the entrance that like signifies what it is um, I think about this all the time because I used to work at Medieval Times which was uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> for four years I worked at Medieval Times um, yeah <laughs> I, I'm super did you know that? I think I did know that it, it like, <laughs> but I'm it never ceases to be funny yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, you really, you really look like uh, <laughs> someone that's from the Middle Ages. Yes, for, for this is radio, so you can describe me any way you want. I, you know, the tunic was a dead giveaway. 
<laughs> so is my cur- like perfectly curled straight bangs with the what do they call that haircut? There's a word for it. My uncle calls it the Lord Farquaad, which I think is a Shrek reference. The, the page boy haircut. The page boy. Thank you. Yes. 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 Um, <laughs> anyway, that's what I look like right now. Um, but yeah, it, but it is interesting because Medieval Times was just another kind of generic big box steel shed that they put like a fake concrete castle around and it's just a it's pretty pretty wild not all that different from what architects do to bring it full circle <laughs> um uh, <laughs> but <laughs> decorate that box decorate that box yeah decorate that box we can Boy, do, this is really getting cynical we have to, it is we have no to, but like, just turn to, yeah we do but I, but i also think too like if you're listening to the show right now and, and and you're an architect like you know that we do more than that or at least we can do more than that and like um um the nice thing about going out on fm radio is that like non-architects listen to this show too and uh we can say that architects do more than like decorate your box like we we do a lot of other things we do a lot of other things uh, and have a lot, an expertise and can like help uh, quarterback the kind of whole building process. Can you yeah. decorate my pyramid though? What's that? Can you decorate my pyramid? <laughs> we <though>? can decorate <laughs> pyramids. Pyramids are fair. I won't get cynical about pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. I'm making a solarium out of wood studs and four foot by eight foot by three quarter inch acrylic panels for the walls and roof. My question is, what would be the best method of attaching the panels to the framing? The panels probably come with like a pre-made channel that you can just uh, screw to the wood structure and that will then hold the panels. Most of the the kind of uh, greenhouse twin wall materials come with mm. um, that kind of uh, that kind of system. If it doesn't, you could go on McMaster Car. Yes, uh, and um, and they have channels of like various sizes. Yeah, it's usually, it's like a U-shaped aluminum channel with like a gasket that goes in it that just holds stuff in place. You yeah. probably also don't need three quarter inch panels. That seems excessive. Um, it depends on the spacing of the structure. Was true. that in the question? They said four foot by eight foot sheets. Oh, I mean, hopefully acrylic. they have some intermediate um, intermediate supports for that yeah because that stuff can get like kind of kind of flimsy which i think is probably why they're using such thick material but also like that doesn't necessarily help the problem because it has self-weight no matter what um a really good solution to this problem would be to call a local architect and have them sketch (laughs) something out for you right which i'm sure that they would be able to do in like a day um exactly but yeah, because because I also think too that there's all kinds of concerns about like water, like and it's a solarium, and so the question is like, is it more like a solarium, like a kind of like a greenhouse that's attached to your side, the side of your house, or is it like really tr- like supposed to be a room that is like a, a part of the house but with a lot of glass and like light? And um, if that's the case, then this project has all kinds of problems because uh, if you are in Chicago. You're your house is going to be a nightmare in the winter because um, uh, it's going to be really hard to detail a good tight connection between acrylic and like uh, wood framing. The wood is going to be kind of a thermal bridge and also like suck moisture through it inside your home. So you really need like something kind of more, 
you need more. <laughs> you need more materials of different kinds in the proper order. But there are exceptions in the energy code for exactly these kind of spaces, yes, yeah. which allows you to not meet the energy code in that area. So a nice thermal break in between that room and the rest of your house will solve yes. solve a lot of yes, that. Yes, they will. Yes. But cool. that's why you need to hire an architect. Yep. 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 It's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> uh, here's another one. This is something again that we talk about on the show a fair amount. Um, what should I know before going into a meeting to review slash negotiate a job offer from a firm? I am a first generation college slash high school graduate, and this will be my first time discussing an offer for a salary job with an architecture firm. Um, it includes medical and dental coverage, 12 days paid vacation, a 401k, commuter reimbursement, professional development reimbursement, and profit sharing. This sounds like a great architecture office. Um, I was wondering if anyone had any advice on what I should be looking out for, what I should expect, the nature of that meeting to be like. I'm guessing that the offer they will present, let's say 55000 will include the cost of the benefits they are providing. So I will actually making taking home less than that, question mark. I will be having to relocate for the job in another state. Do firms typically offer any relocation assistance worth asking for? Whew. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I think that if they are offering, say, 55000 that does not include those benefits. The benefits yeah. should be on top of that. Yes. 55 so, home is usually take-home pay. I would, I would hope. I would hope. Yeah. Uh, take-home pay before taxes. Yeah. And uh, take-home pay before taxes and the portion of those benefits you are responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the firm is covering uh, 80% of your health care and you have to pay $100 a month or mm. something that's subtracted from that. But I think, one, they should they can ask all of these questions. Yeah. Um, especially if you're dealing with, like, an HR person or, like, not the principal that hired you. It's, like, very easy to ask them technical questions. Mm-hmm. And I think they said they're a first-generation mm-hmm. college student, um, which I was as well. Um, and I think the one thing that I wish I had known when I got my first job was that you absolutely should negotiate and they are expecting you to negotiate. So mm. if they offer you 55000 make sure, see if you have other job offers. That's often helpful, but go back and ask for 60 ask, ask for 58 And yeah. I think that um, in most cases, especially in what is right now um, a seemingly robust economy, um, they should be able to offer you a few thousand more per year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like, uh, I guess, fairly good, fairly good benefits. Yeah. So just ask for a little bit more pay. And then I think um, have a clear understanding of what kind of overtime will be expected from you um, if you're hourly or salary. Right. Yeah. I think that like setting the setting of expectations in these scenarios goes both ways and it's easy to forget that. And uh, I I think too, that you can also uh, one of the few useful, like a few hugely useful things that the AIA does is put out a, they put out a compensation uh, uh, survey. So you can go look at what architects are uh, in a similar position are making and they kind of break it down by uh, city region, the, type of job type of office it's pretty useful to as a negotiating tool yeah i think syracuse university also puts out a pretty comprehensive study yeah all right let's ask one more question here um if you knew stonehenge the pantheon and the entire acropolis of greece was going to be destroyed and you had the full ability to save only one which would you choose and why oh god (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> none of them <laughs> let it all go 
<laughs> you're, you're, this is real modernist hours. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, really but like even like Corbusier like you know loved the Acropolis so you can't be such a like you know (laughs) no no I guess I'm just like I we kind of hold these specific uh western historical examples up as like the beginning of architecture and I don't think that's really the the case so like what an what an excellent segue (laughs) what an excellent segue into our next segment perfect yeah talk about the futurists yeah like (laughs) (laughs) David just give we we, we're gonna take a break before we talk to you (laughs) but just give us a couple minute preview to like motivate people to stick through that break Uh, on the let it all go topic, it, it always harkens back to the futurists who produced some really amazing art and then all went and died in a war that they advocated for because they, they had that like <laughs> fanatical, like explicitly fascist mentality. About, yeah. And, you know, they felt weighted down by the, the, the history of Italian architecture. Yeah. So are you so. calling me a fascist? <laughs> <laughs> Everything. That's, that's no, not what he's I saying, for. He's saying be careful. Okay. <laughs> everything, everything is fascist. Every, everything fun is fascist. You're laughing. It's fascist. Well, last time <laughs> I was on this fascist show, fascist. I got accused of being part of the like Christian right because of my, oh my kind of house build itself question. Oh, we're going to deep dive into some murky waters. In this, this is absolutely perfect. Save that break. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I would pick the Pantheon, I, but that's just me. Um, Ditto. Yeah. Ditto. Incidentally, yeah. just yeah. just because I think uh, of the three, that one has the the yeah. greatest sophistication of, yeah. in its development mm. in terms of like what's there for, <laughs> for study for the record. Um, Sorry, I'm laughing because I just thought of a joke unrelated to what you're saying. Thinking if it was like, uh, Mary s- sleep with kill. Bang Stonehenge. All, all the way. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Dude, Buildings on Air yeah. Buildings on Air has fully jumped the shark. <laughs> Craig, thanks for joining <laughs> us on this week's Mass ma- Month's Mailbag. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be here uh, talking more with David Work. No Trend recording artist Nightstop makes his American debut March 30th under the neon lights at Co Prosperity Sphere. Playing his cult blend of 80s cyberpunk and dark wave, Nightstop will appear for one night only. Supported by Pixel Group and more to be announced, this No Trend Showcase benefits Lumpin' Radio. Nightstop, one night only on March 30th, only at CPS. Lumpin' Radio is supported by Mars Community Brewing. Mars's new tap room, located at 3630 South Iron Street in Bridgeport, is now open for lunch Wednesday through Sunday. More information is at marzbrewing.com. What's Mars is yours. Song of Solomon is one night only at Co-Prosperity Sphere this April 21st. A cosmic love opera by Angel Bat Dawid, based off the sensual biblical story, Song of Solomon, this intoxicating, passionate tale will be staged with a full cast in the round and broadcast live on Lumpen Radio. 
Show up and tune in to this tale of two lovers torn apart by war and brought together again by love. It's Song of Solomon live at CPS. It benefits Lumpen Radio. Coming this spring only on I-94. Francis Fitzgerald, Eve Ewing, Will Self, Gary Indiana, Michael Daly, and many more. Miss a show? Listen anytime at mixcloud.com slash lumpenradio. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Every Sunday, 11 a.m.
We are back with Buildings on Air, where we talk about architecture and frequently politics. In this segment of the show, we've got a, a, a double helping of the politics. Um, uh, I'm glad we finally were able to work out this segment. Uh, David Work is here in the studio with us. David, hello. Hi, Kiefer. Hi, Julia. How's it going? Great. Uh, thanks for having me on. I've been uh, super excited about uh Getting some space to rant, <laughs> and uh, yeah. I hope we can get through uh, a, yeah. a good piece. Of, we there's there's a lot to to digest. But yeah, we'll knock knock a piece off. We're gonna talk so, about what like alt architecture, like alt right, and the, their the, obsession the, with yeah the uh, the the Deus Volts uh, online crowd <sighs> and this kind of like trad yeah. arch fetish um, traditional architecture yeah um, aesthetic fetish that um, you know not not. Others, including myself, have identified as like a corner of the internet where there's, um, you know, some contention going on because because uh, some of these people seem to be there. There are some, you know, traditionalists, revivalists, right. uh, preservationists, etc., that are operating in good faith, mm. and you know, even as experts and professionals. Um, and I think lay people you know, who are aligned yeah. with that are not the ne- Notre Dame School of Architecture. Yeah, are, yeah, are not necessarily like <laughs> yeah. in, in the wrong in any kind of like moral or political sense. So I, I want to get that out of the way. I'm not. We joke a lot about fanaticism, but I, right. don't, I don't think we are no fanatics. Um, but there's a an element that that seems to be kind of using this aesthetic. Um, as in, you know, there are precedents for this in history. You know, you don't have to look very far. Right. As a stocking horse for uh, a sort of xenophobic uh, uh, white supremacist or nativist agenda. Right. And um, coming at this from a a new urbanist perspective, which yeah. which was how I kind of got hooked into architecture in the first place. Right. Um, and I, you know, we won't all sort out some autobiography from analysis hopefully but we all you know everything is lived experience sure you know in material conditions that's yes. the, the root of everything <laughs> um like it, it was like deeply worrying to me um to you know we don't want people who with nefarious motives to be owning territory that that, that yeah that legitimately belongs not well, even just like experts but to right. to everyone yeah you know, because architecture is in in a way that yeah other arts yeah aren't public you know, sure and social in right its nature yeah well, yeah because you know it's it's funny because I, I I almost have a little bit of our, when we we're first starting to think about the topic and and doing it on the show I almost had a little trepidation about it because like I don't want to give these people airtime but Ditto. this Ditto, but the yeah. same but at the same time um, I think that it's like w- there's there's been a lot of kind of uh, discussion about the, like the the alt-right and their kind of use of media and uh uh their their presence on the internet YouTube and a lot of it yeah is, and a yeah. lot of it's been and a lot of it's been really terrible a lot of it's been a little bit fun some of it's been a little bit funny and some of it has been like good and incisive and uh, but but i think that it's important to talk about it in, in the context of architecture because one of the kind of like 
um, axioms of buildings on air is that like uh, archite- architecture is always political. We know yes. that, but buildings don't do politics, right? Like right. people do politics, and that's part of the misunderstanding <laughs> yeah. that, that's going on. I think not not just with um, you know the kind of opposition or, or the problematic right. people accounts we've laid out, and we'll start naming names here, a couple of them because we <laughs> yeah. have to have to as the instigators. Sure. Um, uh, but th- there are, are kind of misunderstandings of the scope and limitations of the profession, yeah. um, both outside and in, right? right? Which is something that as, as you know, full disclosure, members of the architecture lobby is, yeah. is a concern that, that we, you know, share with, you know, many of our MUFOs and we discuss, you know, um, kind of openly and earnestly, right? um, and, and, uh, you know, we want to keep that discourse healthy. Sure. Um, so let, let's talk about uh, why modern architecture sucks. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, just finished watching a Paul Joseph Watson video, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm a convert. We need some we like need to, we need some sound effects like uh, scraping, to, like, scraping some, steel like or glass, glass yeah, noises, or shattering glass. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm yeah. Let's let's. Uh, yeah, I'm a convert. Paul Joseph Watson has convinced me we need to. David's uh, doing an irony. If you don't know, we're going to nuke Poundbury and uh, we're going to glass it, and we're going to build a tower out of the shards of glass, and it will it will be a, the the beautiful universal human environment of the future. Um, we we will erase the past and part from it entirely, and leave the ground you know, starting starting with Mars. But no, um, so th- th- this was. I, I saw this video posted. You know, yeah. he, he like put up a you know a grab or a link on on Twitter a while back, and, and you know I capped it in my you know hot take without even looking because I know of, of Watson's. For those who don't know, he is part of the Infowars uh, yeah. media network, which is uh, a. a, a, a huckster outfit for that's basically for right-wing conspiracy 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 theorists and the conspiratorial mindset is is a really like key element of this that you know we can uh talk about a a little bit because there there are elements of it that are you know you know resonant or you know it's scary to me because it's a a something that's so close because Mm. because i think a big part of the reason that these people including i mean the, the latest one who's who's made headlines uh, like Jordan Peterson, the, the, mm. this reactionary current has um, such a big audience or is finding such like fertile ground it is because of the um, uncertainty, you know, the, the instability, the angst of, of the, the times that we live in. Right. And people are looking for security. They're looking for explanations. Right. They want stability. They want order. And um, if you don't, want or need to be too critical or intellectual or work too much at it, you know, a kind of easy narrative of, you know, I, I'm at a loss because somebody else got mine is, right. you know, and, and then the question is, who do you blame? Right. Who do you blame? And, and or, or this idea of yeah. like, even like the kind of like pan, pan European, like oh, I- identity. The, yeah. The identity politics of the which is like totally a historical and 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 wrong but and 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 also glosses over the the thousands of years of tribal murder right and and you know the the violence and exploitation that that yeah underpin feudalism right um but it's also but there's uh, this part of it that's kind of like uh if 
accidentally communists or like almost like reaching an insight uh, or an understanding of like what is the kind of trouble and it's it's not is it, something somebody referenced uh i think just before uh it's political economy it's not technology sure. right sure. so when we talk about building materials building methods uh the, the culture of architecture and right. studio that's what that's that's the business of it the, right. the field of the field of mass production or co- commercial practice is something that's in a way only um tangentially connected with the the media image or construction of capital a architecture right which which is uh, a problematic element of the of the discipline that, sure. that we've also had conversations right about. well and, and it leads these folks to to say some really silly things where like you know they um they're the photos that they kind of post of traditional buildings are like uh, they're always like if a, they're either really bad traditional buildings or it's like you know one one uh, one thing that I always see like you know tweeted back in, in kind of response from from our side to theirs <laughs> if you will uh, is is uh, you know the kind of fact that like hey all of these like neoclassical elements that you know you love so much like they're like carved from foam and like painted like painted and faux finish to look like stone like and and like this it's it's all like a kind of aesthetic uh trapping and like right. but but that that but doesn't with, really matter with, with that, without even getting yeah. into the the question of, of like material honesty right sure. which is which is uh, i would say a, a design culture so, sort of fixation that isn't necessarily relevant to a layperson right lo- you know looking yeah. from the outside it's a matter again of of material production like right. what architects in any environment anybody who builds yeah. you know in, uh, cultures and societies they use the materials at hand right and the so what a lot of what's going on here um is, is a mixing up of cause and effect mm. right or 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 misattributing the effect to to wrong cause making it about ideology when when it's again it's about economy right like one of the things the, one of the linchpins of this um you know kind of uh, fixation that I happen to share really is the, the questioning of like, well, uh, what happened to ornament? Mm. To, well, it, it, and if you know a bit of architectural history, you understand that that in the the the, the last era when when there there was kind of extensive sort of routine ornamentation mm-hmm. of of, um, of any significant work, even down to like kind of bog standard you know commercial buildings, there was a massive industry. Right. Of, of industrial mass production that that, that, was, that was cranking out tons yeah. of the stuff that you could order from a catalog much as you would a, a, a curtain wall assembly today. And the the choices available to the designers of the time are based largely in part on what is what is industry, right. what, what is capital producing sure. or making of, of base materials yeah. for people to yeah. work with. What, what paradigm do we operate in? So, so the context is important and you don't know any of that if you don't have right. a, a, any sort of, let alone art, architectural education, mm-hmm. um, the, Which, the, the art and humanities side of things. So, th- so there's a, a lacuna there with with a yeah. public understanding of architecture at a base at a broad level mm-hmm. that that is again like advantageous for 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 people to you know, jump to hmm. you know utter, utterly wrong right. um, 
maybe sincerely motivated right. but misinformed conclusions right which you're which you're saying like yeah the the kind of this this push for traditionalism is is kind of rooted in, in a lack of education and understanding about about right. architecture history and it's be and, and it kind of is a uh, uh, that ignorance is being exploited. exploited. Yes, yeah, and, and um, but there's but there's another edge of that critique also in, in that there there is a, a tendency on the part I think of, of architects and people who operate within uh, what I call studio design culture. I use mm. that that formation kind of interchangeably because the history of architecture, sure, the, the architecture studio curriculum is is based on. An arts curriculum, yeah, you know, the Beaux Arts method, right? Um, so, um, I'd lost my train there. back to yeah. it. But but there, there, we have to be cautious. Also, I yeah. think uh, uh, of the tendency to dismiss the 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 public or the lay opinion and, that and, modern architecture and, is bad <laughs> right, yeah that, that, that there yeah. is that there is a sense of of something lacking yeah um in in newer works that, that people see in older ones and, and they and they have a nostalgia for that that, it, that yeah they don't well, necessarily need to understand right. all of all of the you, you don't have to have an mfa right um to have to have a kind of legitimate and real reaction to the built environment um, and, and, and so I think that's a tendency that, that we have to, um, be aware of and, and, but recognize also that our agency perhaps is limited there, uh, from within the, the profession or the discipline that this is, it yeah. is a broader question of political education yeah, uh, yeah. or of just education in, in, uh, in terms of liberal arts and humanities at the primary and secondary levels. Right. Like you shouldn't have to go to college to know, to, you I mean, imagine a world where public comment meetings yeah. uh, uh, didn't you, you you could rely on the audience not to need a primer for terms like sure. right of way or cornice or right. in, well, or, and, or a header or right. you know it, just kind of things that are that are basic sort of like uh, linguistic tools of the trade the vocabulary right. that's ninety percent of, of penetrating any field is just understanding its language sure and and. The, and architecture is not the only profession or, or you know, academic discipline to have like the the problems with science journalism at, at the mass yeah. communication level are, are I think a, a really kind of relevant parallel example yeah. of like where uh, you know studies and findings have to be boiled down to. Uh, a soundbite for the evening news and stuff can just be wi- sure. like wildly misinterpreted or misunderstood <laughs> right. because it's de- con- it's right. not contextualized which, which opens the door yeah. for kind of <laughs> like which for kind of pseudoscience right yeah absolutely and yeah. hucksterism yeah again is a little information yeah a little well, knowledge and, can be and, a dangerous thing yeah, yeah and the left and the left is not immune from this also like absolutely not, not not to like uh, you know like draw draw an equivalency at all like but quite the opposite but I think you know we had three or four episodes ago um 
Marinella Dupile come in and and talk oh, yeah. about her article because there's a current and affairs this was article absolutely relevant. Yeah, yeah and, and I read that as well and, and kind of tracks yeah. the, the reaction to well, it online. Yeah, just yeah, the current affairs article is is it was it was about why you hate modern architecture and current affairs is, is a usually very good publication, left wing publication um, that was basically making a kind of case for for traditionalist architecture and saying and and it was and Marinella wrote a fantastic response yeah, to that article yeah. that everyone should read but but it, it is really interesting because i think that like in in kind of both instances the, i i think there's a, a a misunderstanding about the ways in which kind of like cultural workers mm-hmm. like manifest things into like styles and i think that's why you're kind of pointing out these big abstract systems and material conditions like are are are, are at play here right. both in terms of the reception of the work and and the way that reception is kind of um uh taken advantage of to nefarious ends or, or managed or marketed right like, and, like the, but the, also the, the effects yeah. of mass media <laughs> on the field of architecture and right. architectural communication yeah like if you take an architectural history class, <laughs> you know that sure. that the, the, the right. kind of like mirror, uh, you know, the the architects looking at architecture that 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 enterprise ha- has right. expanded so exponentially, sure, uh, um, in the modern era yeah. again because of communications right. and media technologies, yeah, Which, um, yeah, like we we're talking about with Eva, yeah, yeah. And, but but the the uh, to to reference yeah, the sure. current affairs article again. It was. It was. I think. Yeah, a half baked response. <laughs> it really but was, it was. This, yeah. It was. But it, it was motivated by the same concern um, that that brought me here. What was that they were trying to Robinson and I forget his co-author's name were, were noticing the, this kind of like uh, online narrative thread. Yeah, and we're trying to like flank it or get ahead of it, but they weren't working with the full set of tools either. They, right. I mean, I I don't know the the, the background. Uh, I know Robinson produces like the majority of yeah. what appears on, and most of his takes I think yeah. are really good. He's, yeah, he's you know very good at what he does in terms of like political and cultural sure. analysis. Yeah. but again, maybe you should consult an architect. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That seems to right. be a theme on the yeah, show. Right, exactly. Ask an architect. <laughs> Ask an architect. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got like five, five, six minutes left here. I'm like, so, so let's let's talk a little bit more about like what what exactly like are they these these kind of accounts what like what are they doing out there like like what what is their well superficially it's it's. <laughs> innocuous because because most of what they do is is tweet and instagram pictures of nice old buildings right, <laughs> right. um so so there's a, and a, a number of them are accounts that i've followed uh, i think will wind up on a good note to kind of wrap this up on yeah um ones that i followed kind of like you know out of uh aesthetic and also casual like social curiosities yeah so, okay um is is this somebody who who is you know wor- operating on the legit side or somebody with a hidden agenda or are they s- something else somewhere in between and yeah. there was there was one particular exchange i think a lot of what it is is lay people who are who are like into old buildings in in, sure. a, in a kind of like hobby sense um who are engaging with or associated with through followers or the, the people they follow, accounts they follow, or accounts following them, because because a number of times uh, 
uh, other architects. Uh, shout out to uh, KK Robert Arch Nine. I'm not sure if they're on anymore. Ken Robert. And, yeah, and also. Uh, Fred Sharman. Who needs to call on buildings at, on air? Both of those. Fred both Fred Sharman at seven six five have both called out a couple of these people directly, saying, "Okay, are you ethno nationalist? Is it yeah. is that because I'm seeing a whole bunch of identity Europa and other kind of you know I'm seeing swastika avies right. in in your followers? So what's going on here? And in one exchange with with one of these individuals, I think this was a person who was like relatively innocent and was just like looking to grow their audience and yeah. and and you know get getting geared into uh this sick co-option of, of architectural nostalgia um and, and the proof to me was that they they retweeted a quote or a meme about you know the the beauty of ruins and they weren't familiar with the concept of ruin value mm-hmm. from the context of Albert Speer's architecture for Nazi Germany, uh, right? Ryan Reinvert, if I'm getting the the German pronunciation, like that concept was news to them. Yeah, right. That, that they were that they were like, you know, uh, like yeah. sounding this note or clanging clanging this bell that that resonates with an explicitly fascist right. or, or Nazi conception of art and culture. Right. Yeah. This idea that buildings should that great institutional work should be done at such a scale and of such materials that they not only dominate the right. the times in which they right. are they're built but but their ruins so, yeah. awe the any the, the archaeologists sure. of, of of ages to come so do you think do you think that that kind of like ignorance is is genuine i mean like you well know, it's being weaponized it's being, yeah. and it could be yeah it could be disingenuous absolutely yeah yeah because, because, yeah, because you know, I, I wonder, like, some someone has to be kind of uh, like putting this out in the zeitgeist in in some way, but also like it, it might just be that this kind of like hor- horrid nationalism is is in the zeitgeist generally, and and so it's not premeditated. But it sounds well, like what you're saying is that there's, there's a mix of both. Yeah, in, and, 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 and well, online. There, there's a ready-made toolkit for it, unfortunately, yeah. with something that I maybe we'll have to like. Um, slot another segment for this. Yeah. Um, we really need to talk about James Howard Kunstler. <laughs> uh, be, because he, he uh, is both an influential and a problematic figure yeah. in, um, in architectural and planning discourse. And shout out to uh, Kate Wagner at, at McMansion Hell. Yeah. Um, who, friend of the show. Yeah, friend of the show, who um, m- made the point, I, th- I think, uh, really, really important one, and something else that that helps lay people trying to like sort this out for yeah. themselves. That architecture and planning are not the same thing. And when you're looking at the built environment, it's important to understand like yeah. these disciplines. Well, yeah, the, the, and yeah, Marianella wrote a fantastic article. On yeah, that the, too, yeah, the confusion with abouts and and within um, the the disciplines of art, architecture, landscape architecture. Urban planning, urban yeah. design, yeah. all of it kind of mashed together into yeah. you know, I call myself an urbanist sure. now, but I don't need a license for that. Right. So. Right. <laughs> well, we've just got a couple minutes left. Closing question for you. Uh, so, like, what what can we do? Uh, those of us who are who know architecture history and are able to kind of cut through it. I mean, I know that like you just mentioned, there's a kind of like. Uh, like online squad that like you know uh c- calls these accounts out and maybe reports them or whatever else but like um i i don't know that that seems like 
is that, this is that seems much, like necessary this, to this do, is, but yeah i mean but, that's actually like i mean there are much much bigger fish to fry than, yeah. than worrying about a subculture within a subculture yeah. of online yeah um i i think the the greater challenge is is the one that uh eva was talking about eva hagberg fisher was yeah. talking about earlier which is um the the way that architecture that architects and designers engage with the public and and build that a a, a greater more general understanding um yeah. th- there is so much to the built environment that yeah. p- even experts don't know this yeah. <laughs> that you need, that needs yeah. to needs to be investigated and that curiosity and that dialogue um, should be encouraged right. and disseminated at the lay level, yeah. and so so that, so that it's not the, like the exclusionary tendencies of design culture are th- things that I'm adamantly sure. against, just just yeah. as an egalitarian principle. Sure, um, because it limits opportunities, but it also uh, limits our understanding right. of the world around us. You don't necessarily have to become an architect or an art historian. Um, to appreciate these things or to engage with them, right. like like it belongs to everyone, right? You right. Know? Yeah. So yeah, and 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 the more that we can kind of build that that dialogue and that relationship uh, and that broad broader understanding, um, the less that any kind of architectural style uh, can get weaponized through hucksterism or, or, or um, conception uh, of style. As, yeah, as, exactly. Yeah, as, as a kind of like motivating or dominant thing when when more typically it's kind of like re- again response to culture and material conditions yeah. like like th- there's a recip- yeah. reciprocity to it um but as a political project i i, I think public education yeah um needs to be a a, a focus um that, that you can't seed everything to coding for kids you know you like <laughs> right, you stop right. c- stop cutting art classes for god's sake yeah right <laughs> why not both tax the rich uh, that's absolutely a, that's a good place to end buildings on air um um uh, thanks david for being on the show uh really appreciate oh, thank it. you very much for having me it was a pleasure yeah and um, i hope we can do it again soon julie thanks so much for uh for for being our ringer of a producer on yeah, this building center yeah <laughs> awesome well thanks for listening and uh we'll talk to you guys next month this has been buildings on air on lumpen radio Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on Air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.